0: Uh, The Reconstruction of Humanity by Pitrim Sorokin. Sorokin. Prologue. The Eternal Quest continues. Bleeding from war wounds and frightened by the atomic Frankensteins of destruction, humanity is desperately looking for a way out of the death trap. It craves life instead of inglorious death. It wants peace in place of war. It is hungry for love in lieu of hate. It aspires for order to replace disorder. It dreams of a better humanity, of greater wisdom, of a finer cultural mantle for its body than the bloody rags of its robot civilization. Having foolishly maneuvered itself into a death trap and facing the inexorable problem, to be or not to be, it is forced to pursue more desperately than ever before its eternal quest for the survival and immortality. During the catastrophes of this century, Humanity has childishly followed in this quest one leader after another and has credulously tried various plans of salvation in vain. None of the leaders and none of the plans have delivered the goods they promised. Instead of peace, they have produced two world wars. Instead of happiness and plenty, they have brought mankind into an inferno of misery. These facts irretrievably condemn these leaders and their plans as dismal failures. Guilty of irresponsible promises, of inability to prevent catastrophe, of ignorantly leading humanity towards destruction. As a result of this bankruptcy, humanity must bestir itself to discover new cures for its deadly ills. Once more, it is challenged to feverish activity in finding and trying new plans of salvation. More imperatively than heretofore must it choose new leaders." And yet, observing these kinds of leaders it is choosing, one cannot refrain from gloomy forebodings. Tested by the full experience of humanity itself, they appear to be inadequate, and their plans fallacious. These blunders must be corrected before it's too late. Otherwise, humanity is doomed to drift towards an inglorious and painful cavalry, devoid of either redemption or transfiguration. The subsequent pages aim to reveal these shortcomings. Criticism of the current plans is followed by a constructive blueprint. Both the criticism and the constructive suggestions are offered in the humblest spirit of malice towards none and charity for all. Part 1 Quack Cures for War and Impotent Plans for Peace. Chapter 1 Political Cures. 1 Democracy. Among the most popular plans for eliminating war and for establishing lasting peace are political prescriptions. They are offered by a legion of social doctors. The main ingredient of all such prescriptions is the claim that through a change of a certain political conditions, the disease of war can be cured and peace can be assured. In the supplementary ingredients, these prescriptions vary. Some doctors add to the common ingredient a monarchic Others, a Republican element. Some add a dash of autocratic, fascist, or totalitarian regimes. Others, one of democracy. Some believe in many small state powers. Others, in a few big ones. The monarchic, autocratic, fascist, fascistic, and totalitarian varieties are unpopular at the present time. As such, they can be passed over without criticism. Instead, we shall consider... Those political cures that are at present subscribed to by thousands of leaders and millions of ordinary persons. Among these, the most popular is democracy. A host of statesmen and scholars, business leaders, ministers, and plainsmen, and women are convinced that a Republican and Democratic system of government guarantees peace and eliminates war. This belief is offered in hundreds of variations. It underlay the First World War, supposedly fought to make the world safe for democracy and peace. It has been the main motto of the Second World War, in which the formula of democratic and peace-lumming nations has identified peace with democracy. It lies at the foundation of the policy of democratic re-education, of the Germans and the Japanese as the best guarantee of their future and peacefulness. It is used as the justification of the sacrifice of the millions of victims of these wars. It is the reason for the establishment of the United Nations and for the current foreign policies of democratic countries. There is no doubt that a genuine and virile democracy does offer a potent cure for many social cu- troubles. It arrests many a social investi- infection, invigorates many a vital process, and builds up the mental, moral, and physical health of the nations. However, it does not cure all diseases and does not stimulate all the vital processes. In addition, if democracy is contaminated by poisonous elements, its therapeutic power largely evaporates. Most of the democracies, in fact, have been of this low-grade contaminated variety. Beginning with the Athenian democracy and ending with the Dutch, the English, the French, the Belgian, and even the United States democracy before the abolition of slavery, each of these systems was actually a small oligarchy built upon a vast stratum of slaves, serfs, and exploited, disenfranchised, and autocratically ruled colonial helots. Some 20,000 Athenians constituted an oligarchic minority superimposed on several hundreds of thousands of unfree or semi-free Persons derived of practically all political and most civil rights. Some 30 to 40 millions of English citizens formed a small oligarchy superimposed upon approximately 300 million disenfranchised colonials. The same is true of some 6 millions of Dutch citizens compared with approximately 60 million colonial semi serfs, and so on. Similarly, virtually all the democracies of history have been vitiated by many other elements incompatible with the essence of genuine democracy. This contamination, together with the fact that even the best medicine is never an antidote for all diseases, explains why so-called democratic political regimes have hardly ever exerted a restraining effect upon war and a positive influence upon peace. A long series of well-ascertained facts demonstrates that Republican and Democratic nations have been no less belligerent or more peaceful than monarchic and autocratic ones. If we measure the belligerency of the respective nations by their historical war record, we find that comparatively democratic nations, as ancient Greece, England, France, the Netherlands, and the United States, waged war on average during 57, 56, 50, 44, and 49 years, respectively, including the main Indian wars, in every hundred years of their history. On the other hand, the figures for such relatively autocratic nations as ancient Rome, Germany, Russia, Italy, Spain, and Austria are 41, 28, 46, 36, 67, and 40 years respectively. If anything, the frequency of wars is slightly higher for the t- in the totality of the dem- democratic countries than in that of the autocratic nations. The same result is obtained if we measure the burden of war by the relative casualties for a given unit of population of the specified nations as follows. And he gives a table of um, relatively convincing numbers showing the same point. A similar conclusion is reached on the basis of the following data. From 1480 to 1940, there were about 2,600 important battles. Of these battles, Great Britain participated in 22%, France in 47%. The Netherlands in 8%, Russia in 22%, Germany in 25%, Austria-Hungary in 34%, Turkey in 15%, Spain in 12%. These data do not display the alleged peacefulness of democratic nations as compared with the autocratic ones. Furthermore, before 1914, the 20th century was more democratic than the previous centuries of Europe and other western continents. Yet, as we shall see, this most democratic century has proved to be the most belligerent and bloody of all the 25 centuries of Western history. Moreover, moving from the autocratic Middle Ages to the increasingly democratic modern centuries, we move at the same time from the small professional armies of the Middle Ages towards the ever-vaster, universally drafted national armies of modern time. And from the small wars as the sport of kings towards total war. Involving millions, indeed, practically the entire civilian population. With the increasing democratization of humanity, wars have not decreased, but have enormously increased in their magnitude, destructiveness, and scientific bestiality. A long series of similarly ugly facts may be adduced to prove beyond any reasonable reasonable doubt that the superior peacefulness of democratic regimes as compared with the autocratic ones is a mere myth sharply contradicted by the evidence. After the victory of the democratic nations in the First World War, Great Britain, France, the United States, and Belgium dismally failed to eliminate war, or even to reduce its frequency. The Treaty of Versailles and the Allied post-war domination did not lead to a century of comparative peace, as in the case of the Vienna Congress of Autocratic Russia, France, Austria, and England in 1815. Instead, the post-war domination of the democratic nations resulted only in a short period of non-belligerency from 1918 to 1939 and ended in the most terrific explosion in the whole of human history. The same reasons explain why at the present time, after the victory of the democratic bloc of nations, we enjoy no real peace. Only some two years have elapsed since the armistice, and the air is already thick with war sentiments. A feverish race in the most Destructive armaments is already underway, accompanied by diplomatic war, mutual intimidation, and economic unrest. This means that a contaminated democracy is not a potent cure for war. The, quote, democratic cure for war, end quote, is a quack remedy. And the doctors that confidently prescribe it are ignorant medicine men, no matter how great may be their achievements in other fields. These conclusions are reinforced by a consideration of civil wars and internal disturbances. A systematic study of all the important civil wars, revolutions, and riots in the history of ancient Greece and Rome and of the eight,
1: and of eight
0: of the principal latter European countries from 600 BC up to 1925 AD shows that democratic nations and periods have been no less turbulent, violent, and bloody in their internal disturbances than the autocratic nations and periods. The popular belief that democracy is a cure for internal anarchy, that it ensures an orderly and lawful process of social change, that democratic revolutions are less sanguinary, cruel, and destructive than revolutions under an autocratic regime, this notion is again nothing but a myth, sharply contradicted by the ugly facts. From 600 BC up to 1925 AD in the history of the foregoing nations, there were approximately 1,600 twenty-three Important Disturbances, Small and Large Civil Wars Their frequency, magnitude, and destructiveness have been no less in democratic nations and periods than in autocratic nations and periods. In such comparatively democratic countries as ancient Greece, France, England, and the Netherlands, one important disturbance occurred on an average in every 5.4, 8.1, 7.9, and 12.1 years, respectively. Similar data for the more autocratic countries such as Rome, Byzantium, Byzantium, Germany and Austria, Russia, and Spain are respectively 5.8, 17.5, 7.5, 5.9, and 6.1 years. No appreciable difference is shown by the two classes of nations in this respect. Finally, the 4th century BC was the most turbulent in the history of Greece. The same century was, all in all, possibly the most democratic period in their entire history. In Rome, the most turbulent period was the 1st century BC. The same century was at least as democratic as any other period of Roman history. In, in Europe, the most turbulent centuries, in de- decreasing order of turbulence, were the 20th, the 2nd part of the 18th, and the 1st half of the 19th, the 13th, and the 14th. Of these, the 13th and 14th centuries were, on the whole, more democratic than the preceding centuries. The 18th and 19th were more de- democratic than the period from the 15th to the 16th century. And prior to 1914, the 20th century was the m- more democratic than any of the preceding centuries of European history. The total body of evidence clearly demonstrates that there is no close causal relationship between international and civil wars on the one hand, and autocratic or democratic, monarchial or republican political regimes on the other. 2. The United Nations Another fashionable type of political alleged cure for war is the United Nations. In the last few years, the belief in this remedy has grown rapidly. And at the present time, in the opinion of millions, the United Nations is the only cure for war and the only hope for lasting peace. Hundreds of societies devoted to, quote, one world and, quote, world federation are feverishly active in speech making and printed propaganda. Millions of dollars are spent for those cures. Hundreds of quack doctors are flourishing in this epidemic of credulity. Humanity seems to have found again the surest cure for war. However commendable this enthusiasm may be, it is bound to fade and to lead to new disillusionment. The League of Nations was likewise launched in an atmosphere of the highest hopes and greatest expectations. Nevertheless, after some twenty years of inglorious existence, it died in impotence and was soon relegated to oblivion. There is little reason to believe that the United Nations will fare better. If anything, its inner organization is more defective than that of the League of Nations, and its social environment is less favorable to to its growth than that of the Geneva Institution. The United Nations organization is shot through and through with cancerous self-contradictions. On the one hand, it is based upon the principle of equality of all nations. On the other, the great powers are legally and actually unequal to the small powers. It is democratic in the sense of giving an equal vote to all the nations, and it is most undemocratic in making the vote of one Cuban or Icelander equal to the votes of some 20 to 40 Americans, Russians, or Chinese. Its majority vote in terms of the number of nations voting for a given proposition often turns into a small minority vote when counted according to the number of individual citizens represented by such a majority vote. The small nations claim equal status with the great powers in regard to rights and privileges, but they insist on a sharp inequality so far as economic, military, and other burdensome duties are concerned. It is based on the principle of unanimity of the great powers, yet it rests on the principle of majority and minority votes that precludes such unanimity. Even its policy of deciding problems by majority vote is flagrantly contradicted by the veto principle, by virtue of which a single great power can annul the decisions of the majority. The organization of its voting units is also self-contradictory. It is devoid of any consistent principle. Thus, a block of Latin American and Arab states has one-half of all the votes of the United Nations, although representing only a small fraction of the total human population. The highly unequal small powers in several big nations, such as the United States and China, have each only one vote. On the other hand, the British Commonwealth and Soviet Russia have, respectively, six and three votes. Owing to this peculiar characteristic of the voting units, the majority votes of the United Nations are rendered highly precarious in their moral, legal, and social authority. Such a haphazard organization affords an excellent opportunity for a degeneration of the United Nations into a mere screen for cynical power or politics. Of this or that block of nations representing but a small portion of humanity, strong or weak in its military power, and undistinguished in its creative achievements. Again, the United Nations is supposed to re- represent humanity as a whole. Each individual member is meant to vote and act for the welfare of all mankind, rather than that of his particular clique. Actually, its members are first and foremost the delegates of the state, appointed and given mandatory instructions by the states for the defense of parochial state interests, regardless of whether these coincide with or contradict that of humanity as a whole or its major part. Self-contradictory are also its powers and functions. On the one hand, it is merely a sort of advisory council to the sovereign states. Its decisions are not mandatory for any sovereign state, nor can they be enforced as long as it lacks a powerful military and police force of its own. It does not possess even an extraterritorial piece of land for the control of its own buildings and personnel. It is entirely dependent upon the generosity of its member states, which are supposedly subordinate to it and controlled by it. On the other hand, the United Nations is not supposed to constitute a mere debating forum where decisions are not binding upon its member states. Thus, it is neither strictly a debating society nor an organ of world government enacting and enforcing laws. Even as the highest tribunal of human conscience, the United Nations is an abortive child. Made up only of representatives of states, it is bound to fail even in this function. For of all the important groups, religious, ethical, scientific, economic, and so forth, the state group is the most Machiavellian and cynical in its policy of the raison d'état*, in its power politics, in its application of the rule that might is right. Its representatives, when they act as diplomats, ministers, executives, generals, and admirals, and other state agents rather than as private persons, are the most Perfidious and nihilistic embodiments of naked power politics. No matter how noble and ethical they may be in their private capacities, when they assemble as state representatives, their standards inevitably fall to this level. Although even as a mechanism of power politics, the United Nations is largely impotent. To repeat, in these and many other respects, the United Nations is shot through and through with self-contradictions. It is a house divided against itself. No organization incessantly tortured with such self-contradictions can function successfully. From this standpoint, even the League of Nations was better organized than the United Nations. Likewise, the social and cultural environment of the United Nations is hardly more favorable to its growth than that of the Geneva Institution. As will be indicated later, the process of disintegration of all, almost all the main values of humanity, ethical and religious, economic and political, has increased rather than decreased since 1918. See The Crisis of Our Age by Sorokin. All the legal and moral norms of human conduct and relationships, beginning with the Sermon on the Mount and ending with legal and purely utilitarian norms of Victorian decency, are now more precarious and, quote, relativized than they were even in 1914 to 1918. Their controlling and binding power is less effective today than it was then. Interpersonal, intergroup, and international contracts, such as the marriage vow, management labor contracts, and solemnly concluded international treaties, have been violated much more frequently by persons, groups, and state powers during the last score of years than during the 19th century and at the beginning of the 20th century. Bethmann-Holwig's reference to the treaty guaranteeing the neutrality of Belgium as a mere scrap of paper shocked the whole world in 1914. Owing to violations of such treaties during the period 1918-1947 to by practically all governments, we have become so accustomed to them that we regard them as something normal. The frequency of violation of contracts between labor and management has increased so sharply that they fail to shock us any longer. The violation of solemn marriage vows through desertion and divorce have grown so rapidly that it ceased to be a scandal, and so it is in the field of all other norms, values, and contracts. If these have lost their binding and controlling power, if they are flouted increasingly on the slightest pretext, and if we all have become double-crossers, then no agreements reached by the United Nations, no contracts entered into it by them, can really be binding upon the parties. They are certain to be broken whenever such a violation appears profitable if as is suggested by the mutual recriminations of the allies the recent ta- Tehran, Yalta, Potsdam, and Moscow agreements have been violated by yesterday's comrades-in-arms, and if the Atlantic Charter Charter had been repudiated and forgotten by its signatories, what reason have we to believe that the semi-platonic declarations of the United Nations, or rather the disunited nations, will be more respected? The United Nations can hardly prosper in such an unhealthy environment. As the highest tribunal of the ethical conscience of humanity, it cannot function because of the defects of its own organization, nor can it function as a moral force in the unmoral and cynical world of today. As a power machine, it cannot work successfully because it lacks the necessary power. Being vitiated by innumerable contradictions, it cannot employ the concerted power of mutually harmonious states, nor can it apply even... "...the calculated egoistic common sense of the policy, grab and let others grab, so well exemplified by the unholy diplomats of the Holy Alliance and the Congress of Vienna. As a result of these internal and environmental defects, the United Nations has already displayed all the weaknesses of the League of Nations and many additional ones. It has already revealed its impotence to settle any serious conflict among the great powers." The great and small powers ignore it in connection with the most important problems. Even when they do submit to it, such matters as the trusteeship of the Pacific Islands or the annexation of Southwest Southwest Africa by the Union of South Africa, they explicitly declare that, regardless of the decision of the United Nations, these territories will be annexed anyhow. When such a procedure is practiced, it speaks for itself. No further evidence of a quasi-contemptuous attitude towards the United Nations and no better proof of its impotence are needed. Hence, it has already lost the moral prestige it enjoyed at the moment of its inception. The incidental majority of its security council has not been able to resist the temptation of misusing its majority position for the pursuit of selfish interests. By placing on the agenda the Russian-Persian conflict and refusing to consider The Anglo-Persian conflict and the bloody British-Dutch-French-Indonesian strife by airing and denouncing the policies of the Slavic bloc and passing by in silence the much more autocratic and imperialistic colonial policies of the big and small colonial empires. The Anglo-American policies in the Middle and Far East, the policies relating to Greece, Palestine, Egypt, and French Indochina, and a host of other undemocratic and rapacious policies of colonial countries. Through these and many similar partialities, the United Nations has degenerated into a mere screen for the power politics of the artificial and incidental majority of the world states. In spite of its brief existence, it has already succumbed to the fatal sickness of the League of Nations as a similar screen for the selfish interests of Britain and France. To sum up, Through such one-sided actions, the moral prestige of the United Nations has already been seriously impaired, and if these actions continue, there is no assurance that they will not, its moral prestige is bound to sink lower. Having neither moral authority nor adequate physical power, it cannot perform the miracle of eliminating war and erecting a temple of uh, eternal peace. The roots of its failure are deep in the very soil of contemporary society and culture, single-handed, It cannot radically change the world. In a modified form, and as part of a much much vaster system of social, cultural, and personality changes, the United Nations may play an important role in the realization of its great mission. Otherwise, it's bound to repeat the life course of the ill-starred League of Nations. 3. World Government This conclusion is beginning to be shared by an ever-growing number of leaders and common people their increase accounts for the movement in favor of a world government as a more effective cure for war and a more adequate way to, to a lasting peace. The central points of this plan consist of two principles. The establishment of a genuine world government and the abolition of the national sovereignty of the existing states. This scheme is free from many of the contradictions of the United Nations. If realized, it can achieve a great deal more than the United Nations can achieve. As part of a vast ensemble of social and cultural changes necessary for the elimination of war, some sort of world government is indispensable. Taken alone, however, without other changes, it would offer no better an antidote for war than democracy or the United Nations. For the present and the near future, such a system can hardly be realized. Almost all the proponents of a world's government insist on their own special conditions. These conditions are invariably constructed so as either to make the nation of each partisan dominant or to promote its economic, political, and other interests at the expense of those of other countries. Almost all the American advocates of a world government assume, explicitly or implicitly, that the United States shall play the dominant role in such an organization, and that the pattern of the United States government shall be the form of the world government. They reject the principle of proportional representation based on the relative number of citizens of the various countries, for under such an arrangement, India, China, Russia, and other Asiatic countries would have a greater number of representatives than the United States." For similar reasons, they reject other bases of representation in the government of the One World, which would not secure for the United States the preponderant role. Instead, they propose, in a highfalutin form, such conditions of representation as would ensure this role to the United States, in spite of the fact that some of the conditions would violate the principles of democratic government. The same attitude applies to the partisans of One World in other countries. They are ardent and open-minded internationalists, provided th- that their particular brand of world government is accepted. If the brand is rejected, they become ardent nationalists. In other words, a large part of the movement for quote, one world is a camof- camouflaged imperialism of nations and groups bent on promoting their special economic, political, and cultural interests and unwilling to make any genuine sa- sacrifices on behalf of the c- cause of world government. Their position is similar to that of the United States Senate in its resolution expressing willingness to c- submit to the world court any manner except the important problems considered as purely do- domestic, which should be decided exclusively by the United States. Such factors preclude the possibility of a free realization of the movement. All the nations and groups that have anything to lose by the plan would resist it. It is unthinkable, of course, that they could be coerced by the dominant powers. Such coercion, however, would amount to a conquest of the weaker nations by the stronger ones. As such, it would defeat the main objective and central value of world government as an instrument of peace and freedom. Under such conditions, the world government would become a sort of world tyranny, which might turn into the worst tyranny the world has ever known. Under the existing social and cultural conditions, including the egoism of contemporary individuals and groups, it is hardly possible to organize freely a real-world government. The nations and groups that have anything to lose through such an organization would resist and reject it. If they were coerced, the world government would become a tyranny of the strong groups over the weak ones. Such coercion would lead to endless wars. Hence, the entire plan would result in dismal failure. Besides this difficulty, the plan for a world government reveals serious shortcomings. Its most fatal weakness is the assumption that the cause of wars is the existence of a multitude of sovereign states, and that as soon as they are abolished, and one sovereign world government is established, lasting peace will ensue. This belief is very old and has been set forth many times. See Himleben uh, Plans for World Peace Through se- Six Centuries, uh, 1943. Recently, among its other proponents, Reeves repeated it, and a galaxy of eminent authorities sponsored it. We are told that, quote, Wars between groups of men forming social units always take place where these units, tribes, dynasties, churches, cities, nations, exercise unrestricted sovereign power. Wars between these social Units cease the moment sovereign powers are transferred from them to a larger or higher unit. See the Anatomy of Peace, 1945. In spite of the clear enunciation of these, quote, laws, and of the host of authorities supporting them, the propositions in question are fallacious. From 500 BC up to 1925 AD in the history of Greece, Rome, and later European countries, There were 967 international wars. Within the same period in the history of the same countries, there were about 1,623 civil wars, that is, wars occurring within the limits of a given sovereign state. The major civil wars were as devastating as the large-scale international wars. See Dynamics, Sorokin, Part 3, pages 283 and 306. This means that, contrary to Reeve's, quote, laws, wars occur not only between sovereign states or other sovereign groups, but even more frequently between the non-sovereign parts of the same state or group. It means also that the abolition of sovereign states and the establishment of a world government cannot eliminate civil wars. Moreover, if many civil wars have occurred in comparatively small and homogeneous nations, such as Greece, Rome, and eight years later, Sorry, eight later European countries, they would occur much more frequently within the framework of the entire body of humanity, made up of countless heterogeneous groups with diverse and even opposing interests, a purely external unification of all mankind. "...under the sovereign rule of a world government would merely substitute, quote, civil wars for, quote, international wars, without decreasing their total number and frequency, their destructiveness, or their bloodiness and inhumanity. If anything, such a change would be likely to increase their frequency and especially to intensify their bestiality, since civil wars, on the whole, have been more inhuman than international wars." Hence, the replacement of a multitude of sovereign states by a single world world government would in itself prove inefficient and inadequate as a cure for war. The alleged, quote, laws of Reeves are contradicted by many other facts. If his laws were valid, we should expect that with the subjection of multiple sovereign states and other groups to vast empires of Genghis Khan or Timur, the Gupta or Marya, Dynasties, Alexander the Great, Mohammed, Napoleon, or Hitler, wars would decline through the decrease of sovereign groups. As a matter of fact, they sharply increased. Conversely, the periods marked by an increase in the number of sovereign states should show, according to Reeves' laws, an intensification of war. As a matter of fact, such periods as the Middle Ages, when there, are, there were a great number of European states than after the fr- 15th century, or the period 1815 to 1914, when a large number of new sovereign states appeared Greece, Bulgaria, Serbia, Romania, Belgium, Luxembourg, Norway, Italy, Chile, Bolivia, Peru, Ecuador, Brazil, and most of the other Latin American states such periods were marked by either a very low level of war as in the Middle Ages, or by a notable de- decrease in belligerency as during the period 1815 to 1914. Furthermore, if the incorporation of many sovereign groups into a single empire, such as the Roman Empire, sometimes leads to a temporary Pax Romana, with its decrease of international wars, such a unification is followed by an increase of civil war between the various coercively unified groups in addition a decrease of international war does not inevitably occur in such periods of unification and when as in rome it does occur it proves to be short-lived and is attended by a disintegration of the empire with a consequent increase of international and intergroup wars several fallacious assumptions underlie reeves propositions the first is that freedom in human society, quote, is exclusively the product of the state. It is indeed unthinkable without the state. Experience demonstrates that during all our history, there has been one method alone to approach this ideal. This method is law. Human freedom is created by law, end quote. If these propositions were sound, we should have to include that for millennia mankind lived without any freedom, since the state as a specific group appeared comparatively late in human history. That for millennia all the tribes and clans were in incessant bellum optimum contra omnes, and that within each tribe the members were ceaselessly engaged in slaughtering or despoiling one another that man possess no legal or moral norms, since those are created only by the state, and so on. Reeves explicitly declares that no freedom or law exists in the jungle, in the pre-state stage of humanity. It would be superfluous to point out that all these propositions, both factually and logically, are sheer nonsense, the body of ethnological and anthropological evidence shows that practically all primitive tribes have the, their norms of law and that these norms function fairly efficiently in controlling their behavior. The evidence demonstrates, further, that law is not created by the state, but existed long before the state emerged. Indeed, that it is nece- a necessary prerequisite for the emergence of the state itself. Intertribal and intratribal, or civil wars, have been neither more frequent nor more devastating than the interstate and civil wars waged during the emergence of the state. It is significant that out of some 403 preliterate people studied by Hophouse, Wheeler, and Ginsburg, only two tribes were found whose history was free from war, and these tribes happened to be marked by the lowest level of civilization. Quote, consisting of primitive hunters and collectors of the gifts of nature, in distinction from the, quote, more advanced pastoral and agricultural tribes. And the reference is the material culture and social institutions of the simpler peoples, 1915. Moreover, not all laws enacted by the state have created or even amplified freedom. A large proportion of state laws, especially those of the tyrannical, monarchical, autocratic, or totalitarian states, have led to a curtailment of freedom and even to slavery or serfdom. We must not forget that slavery and serfdom are often established and always sanctioned, protected, and enforced by state laws. If such laws promoted the freedom of the masters to the vast disenfranchised masses of the slaves, serfs, and unfree and semi-free groups, they meant the loss of their freedom. There is no need to argue these elementary platitudes, well known to any competent anthropologist, sociologist, or historian, in order to perceive the fallacy of the Reeves' assumptions. Equally erroneous is his conception of the differentiation of humanity into groups. Explicitly or implicitly, he contends that among the various groups into which mankind is differentiated racial, sex, age, kinship, nationality, or language, territorial, religious, political, and economic or occupational groups such as the family, the clan, the tribe, the nation, in contradistinction to the state, the, the caste, the social order, and the social class, the state group is always paramount and sovereign. He holds that it is the most powerful group, controls all the others, creates all the laws, protects all the freedoms that is enjoyed, and invariably serves only beneficial purposes." Hence, he believes that as soon as the sovereignties of the separate states are abolished in favor of a single world state, war will be eliminated and lasting peace will be established. This traditional conception of the social differentiation of humanity and of the supremacy of the state among the non-state groups is fallacious. The facts show that the state is only one among these various groups, that it emerged relatively late in human history, that law is created by each of these groups, often without permission or sanction on the part of the state, that the state has not been, de facto or even de jure, the only sovereign group. For instance, the medieval Christian church was more sovereign than the medieval state and exercised supremacy over it, and so on. And he references uh, his own society, culture, and personality, their structure and dynamics, 1947 chapters 10 to 16. Which he'll call society from now on. For all these reasons, even if we succeeded in uniting all states into a single world state, this would not lead to an elimination of war among the non-state groups, because these, these groups in the world state, or, I'm sorry, between these groups in the world state, or between the heterogeneous parts of the world state itself. Besides, the laws enacted by such a world state would be effective only if they were approved and supported by all the non-state groups. Otherwise, according to Tacitus's quid leges sine moribus, they would remain impotent, devoid of any efficacy or controlling power, like the notorious Volstead Act, of prohibition era in this country. The totality of the foregoing evidence is sufficient to prove why, taken alone, the establishment of a world government or the abolition of state sovereignties could in no way either eliminate or decrease war or lead to a just or lasting peace. If neither democracy, nor the United Nations, nor a world government offers an adequate cure, still less adequate are other, less thoroughgoing, and more narrow political remedies, such as this or that specific type of democratic regime, the abolition of the veto power in the United Nations, or the equalization of its great and small powers, and a federated variety of world government. One can only regret the enormous amount of time, energy, and money spent on behalf of such insignificant details. Such concentration on petty minutiae, to the exclusion of weightier considerations, betrays the utter confusion and derangement of the public mind and that of its leaders. Let us now turn to the politico-economic cures for war and factors of peace.